This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome the winner of 25 professional events from all around the world and a commentator from Sky Sports Golf, uh, Tony Johnstone, to the Sub-70 podcast. Tony, uh, thank you take, for taking the time today. I really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I managed to fit you into my super, super busy schedule between sleeping and doing nothing else. <laughs> walking out and getting the mail or something, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, strange times. Strange yeah, I times. haven't done one of these in a while. It just didn't feel right. But I'm really excited to talk to you. I uh, love watching the European tour and followed your career for years. So I'm, I'm ready to get back in the saddle of this a little bit. So my, my first question is, I kind of probably know the answer to this because we're not doing a whole lot. But first off, how are you and your family doing health-wise, hopefully staying safe? And, and is there anything besides going to get the mail sleeping and having a pint that uh, that you're doing during this shutdown we're all dealing with? Uh, lots of lots of time for marital arguments, I must, get, I must say. <laughs> Are you winning or losing them? No, I've, I mean, you know, I haven't won an argument since my daughter was born 29 years ago in this household. That's for sure. But, uh, no, um, you know, I suppose we're all going through the same thing, you know, just trying to find things to do, all the stuff that you put on the, the back burner for the last 20 years, you know, tidying up, fixing, DIY. Um, what can we do? You know, you just got to try and abide by the rules, stay home. Unfortunately, there's still too many people that are not taking this seriously, despite the numbers, the, the horrific numbers of people that are actually dying from this virus. It's, it's just horribly tragic, isn't it? So, you know, the solution, stay home, try and keep healthy, try and keep well. What more can we do? How is uh, golf in the United Kingdom, not from a professional level, but from just playing? Are the clubs shut down like a lot of them are here, or how are they looking at golf? Are they saying that's unsafe, don't do it, or will they let you get out there with uh, social distancing and play a little bit? Uh, no, courses are closed. Clubs are closed. I think um, people can walk on golf courses, um, but you know, I think only with people that you live with, obviously, and the social distancing applies. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, where is this all going to end? Who knows? None of us know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, trying to be sensible, lock the doors once a week to the supermarket uh, to get supplies and then just try and keep busy somehow. European tour, um, I love watching it. It's been so great since the Golf Channel years ago put the feed in. You know, I love what you guys do at Sky. Um, I think you guys have the, the right tone for, for covering golf, and I miss it. I miss waking up on Saturday, Sunday mornings, and it's on, uh, seeing the players. Uh, what are you hearing about? Is there anything on uh, the news front that says, hey, we might be starting our X, Y, or Z that you're hearing? No, nothing whatsoever. I mean, you know, it's just it's full lockdown, and basically we're just going to bide our time. You know, we've been told by um, European Tour Productions that, you know, we've just got to sit and chill. And our, our schedules that we were basically given at the beginning of the year uh, are now, um, you know, at, at the window. And when we start working again, they'll try and get us all to, to get to do some work to earn a, a bit of a living. But no, there's no signs here when this is, is going to restart. You know, I mean, everything's cancelled basically up until the open in the middle of July. Um, and it might go on longer. You know, I think if we get to see any golf this year, we're 
we're all going to be pretty excited. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Well, the nice thing about being commentary on this side of the, the pond, though, is that, you know, the, the commentators, whether you're with Sky or with um, the international feed, the world feed, which you guys get on Golf Channel, is, you know, all the commentators are guys that played golf together, basically. So we're doing commentary with our buddies, and I think that comes over in the commentary that, uh, you know, we really do have a, uh, we have great camaraderie and we really have a great time doing the commentary. It's, it's a lot of fun. That was actually one of my questions I had for, you know, later in the podcast. But as long as we're here, let's let's talk about it. Because there's been, as you know, in the States, all kinds of con- not controversy because it's, you know, first world problem. But CBS's coverage and the flow doesn't seem right with the guys out. And, and I thought personally I'd hear more from Davis Love with all the experience he has about that situation and, and what that player is going through. And it just seems like... Uh, between NBC and CBS, it's not as tight as it was. When I watch the European feed, sometimes to me, like you guys do less is more where you'll have that. If Sam Torrance is doing it with that wonderful voice and it just might be a few words and lets the, the golf tell the story. And uh, there to me seems a different vibe between the European tour coverage, which I just, my personal uh, thing I like, I love the way you guys sort of handle it. It's a little more understated, uh, not as on top of each other. Anyway, is it do, do, when you watch the American coverage? Do you see the same thing, or do you think there's a difference between the way Europeans generally want to see their golf covered versus the way the Americans do? Or and I know it's a it's a harder than people think it is to get that right balance of too little or too much sometimes. Yeah, I think we we do have a completely different um, ethic over here. You know, I, I I remember when I first started doing any commentary in the early 2000s. Basically, um, you know, the, the the rule of thumb was that if you can't add to the pictures, then just shut up, which made good sense. Sometimes the pictures just have to speak to the, for themselves. And, you know, I think the, the American broadcasters definitely have a, a different way of doing things. One of our guys worked for um, one of the American broadcasters at the uh, BMW PGA at Wentworth a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, he, they've got a different way of doing things. He was covering basically three holes in the commentary. And after the first session, the first day, he was pulled in and said, listen, we want you to try and pretend that you're getting paid by the word. We want no gaps. We want no silent pauses. You know, we want wall-to-wall talking the whole way through the commentary, which I'm not really that comfortable with. You know, I think uh, there are times when, you know, the pictures do speak for themselves and they speak better than, you know, a commentator can. Just, Just shut the hell up and... And, and let it flow. You know, people people are not stupid. They can see what's going on. And, uh, you know, you can maybe give them some insights into what the guy's facing, uh, you know, how the guy's been playing of late, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, sometimes I think you've just got to, you've just got to just shut the hell up. <laughs> well, what have you learned from being on the other side, from playing professional golf for all those years and winning all over the world? And then when you watch professionals play, what, what maybe didn't you know that you've now know from watching it on the other side or, or doing the commentary that kind of, wow, that's interesting. I didn't think about that when I was playing. Uh, purely in terms of the commentary side, you mean? Well, in terms of maybe, you know, um, for example, wow, even that great player hits a bad shot every now and then, or just a strategy thing or something that once you're not in that arena and you're watching it, that you know, that you've you've learned about the game at the professional level from watching a lot of other players versus you being in the arena focused on yourself and what you're doing? 
Okay. I think, um, firstly, the first thing I, I think I've noticed, and, um, you know, guys don't really like you uh, telling the truth sometimes, but course management. I think the, um, the course management these days, and I think this all goes back to the way the games played, equipment, etc. but a lot of the time, I think the course management really just sucks, to be honest. I see guys hitting shots and clubs on particular holes or when they're facing uh, particular shots on the golf course, and you can't help thinking, you know, what is this guy doing? What is he doing? You know, no person in their right mind would be doing that. And, uh, you know, the, the question is, how, how honest can you be? You know, because you can't really say, you know, this guy's being a complete dumber uh, because, you know, nobody likes being, um, being told that. Uh, but I think most of the players are aware that you try to, you know, you try to call the shots as they are and, and the pictures as they are. You know, if the guy's hit a good shot, you say it's a good shot. If the guy chunks a chip, you know, you've got to be able to say, look, that was absolutely horrendous. He duffed it. Uh, you know, the the odd guy gets a bit testy if you say things like that. But, you know, that's what it is. And, you know, you've got to have a you've got to have a a rapport with the players. You know, we go out there every Tuesday and Wednesday to look at the course and try and get to talk to as many players as possible. You know, you're trying to get the inside story. And, um, you know, you're always aware of what you can and can't use on air. So you always ask the guys, look, can that be used? And, you know, you can't ever be, betray their trust. If you do that once, you're done. The guys will never talk to you again. But yeah, I think that side of it, and the other side is the commentary side of it. Uh, you know, when you sit in there and you've got, um, you know, as an ex-pro golfer, you've got enough voices in your head because we're all half punchy anyway. But suddenly you've got directors and producers and they're doing counts in your ear. And it's not for everybody. Some people just uh, just never get used to that and just, just can't do it. And you've got, you know, three or four people talking in your headphones. So I didn't see that side of it when I was playing. Um, yeah, a couple of other things I didn't see is... Um, how hard the tour staff work. My God, the hours they get there. You know, you get there uh, way before playing, you're out having a look at the course and there are uh, officials out there marking spots and uh, checking the pace of the greens and the hours they leave, the, uh, the, the tour officials. I wasn't aware of that when I was on tour. I should have been uh, because maybe I wouldn't have been such a pain in the butt towards them. But, you know, these guys get there at five in the morning and leave at nine at night. I mean, it's horrendous hours. So, yeah, there are a lot of eye-openers in every, in every department of the game, to be honest. When you're seeing poor decision-making, do you think that's just they're hitting the wrong shot because they're hitting the wrong shot? And if it was a Tuesday round with their buddies, would they hit the right shot? In other words, do you think that pressure under the circumstances in tournament golf at the highest level makes people's thought process not as clear sometimes as it should be if they were at their home course? Like, Would you say they would never hit that shot, for example? That's a heck of a good question. You know, I've, I've often thought there's a there's a job to to be earned just uh, coaching guys with with course management and strategy. But I think a lot of these guys come out here now, and um, the management teams, uh, in some ways, are at fault because a lot of these guys have instilled in them that you are a golfing god. The whole world is there for your benefit, and you're a superstar. You know, and they don't go out with the intention of actually learning. Uh, you know, you get guys coming out here sort of ready to play from college, etc. And they don't seem to come out here wanting to to learn, to improve, and to to get the absolute most out of their game that they can. They come out, they get a couple of early wins, and, you know, I know it all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the course management, I think uh, a lot of players depend too much on their caddies. 
You know, uh, you're the only one that's heading the shot. You're the only one who knows how you feel. You're the only one that sees the shot uh, that you want to hit. Um, and it works in reverse. Sometimes the caddies are right. Often the caddies will say, look, you know, don't have a go at this. Just chip it out sideways and the player will take the shot on and make a complete dog's breakfast out of it. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a hard one to say because, uh, you know, and some of the top players, we won't name players, but some of the top players, you see it week after week and you see catastrophic course management errors and you think, you know, Tiger wouldn't have made those mistakes. You know, Tiger was fantastic, his course management, um, Jack Nicklaus, of course. You know, the, the really top players make great decisions. It's as simple as that. Well, speaking of, uh, you're talking about uh, absolute superstars. I know Seve would have had a birthday last week. I know he was a, a very good friend and a competitor and everything, you know, in between mm-hmm. uh, when you played the tour. What do you yeah. miss about him as a person the most when you think about it? Uh, everything. <laughs> I mean, to this day, I still find it hard to talk about Seve without getting a lump in my throat. Um, I was actually working on the Spanish Open the, the week that Seve passed away. And uh, they said, look, we've got to have something in the studio the next morning. And I will you go to the studio and do a piece on Seve? And I mean, it took me half a second to come up with the answer. Absolutely not. I mean, I knew I wouldn't get two words out without just standing there crying like a baby. Even when we came on air, you know, we, we said a bit and... Uh, you know, I was sitting there with uh, Richard Boxall and, uh, you know, we sort of took it in turns. He would say a few words and then crack up. I would say a few words and then crack up. But we miss everything about him. You know, the flair, the charisma, the humor, um, and well, obviously the, the magical golf as well, because there's just no doubt in my mind that Seve was the most naturally gifted golfer that ever lived. He could do things with the golf club that uh, I've never seen anyone do before or since. And, um, you know, we'd, he, he was just, it was something about the guy. You know, when he walked into a room, the whole atmosphere of the room was just elevated, especially on our side of the pond. I don't think really the Americans really got savvy in a lot of ways. And I don't think he really got the Americans in a lot of ways. I don't think he was ultra comfortable over there. But, you know, when he played over in Europe, you know, he was our savvy. He was our hero. And, um you know, he was he was just something absolutely special. You know, every single one of us just, just loved him to pieces. I've read stories that as, you know, as elevated of a champion and the status he had, he would still help a lot of people quietly with their golf games and short games and give advice, even if it was a tour rookie. Is that sort of correct that he had that kind of heart in him that he would help other players out and kind of do it quietly, but uh, he wasn't just on this pedestal and wouldn't talk to the guy who was 150th on the money list that year. He would, he was a very helpful, kind man. Is that was that a correct statement from my side? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, he would, you know, he was always keen to help others improve. Um, you know, he was keen to beat beat your brains in on the golf course. But, but on the range, Sandy Lyle was another one actually. Um, never forget Sandy. Sandy, it always amazed me. He would walk down the range, and if he saw, um, you know, the lowliest guy on tour, a rookie just come from the tour school, struggling. Sandy would stop and give the guys two hours of his time. Uh, Sevy was the same. Sevy, you know, he loved to help. And then he would also love to show you how to do it properly, in which case he'd walk away and you'd think, how the hell am I ever going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny little story. I mentioned it on a, on a podcast the other day. I was, um, we were at um, a golf tournament, and I was on the putting green late in the evening. Sevy was the only one on the putting green. And my little boy, Dale, he was little in those days. He was about five. 
And I'm, you know, I was always a very jab putter, very steady stroke. And Sevi comes wandering over. He says, hey, Tommy. He always called me Tommy. I don't know why, but I was always Tommy. Tommy, Tommy, you, you, you know putt like that? I said, putt, I've putted like this my whole life, Sevi. And he said, no, no, i show you how to putt properly. And he starts getting me to stroke the putt. And uh, my young son, Dale, is sitting the other side of the hole. So Sevi looks at me and says, hey, Dale, you're doing nothing. You throw the ball back. Dale says, no, this is okay. So I hit a putt, roll it in. Dale takes the ball out the hole, stands up and winds it up underhand and just lets go and absolutely nails Sevi right in the crown jewels. <laughs> absolutely pins him and he just goes down on his hands and knees like a sack of potatoes. It was the funniest thing. And there were people out on the veranda watching him and he was groveling in the dirt. <laughs> it was just, and my poor, my poor boy Dale, I mean, he just stood. He knew Sevi was great. But, I mean, Sevi finally gets his breath back and typical Sevi, he just looked at me and he said, hey Dale, he says, you know what? You throw really good, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, Sebi was my boy's hero from, from that moment on as well. But, yeah, he, you know, he was just, he just had a, such a wonderful streak of humanity. And I don't know if it was because of, you know, his, um, his, his upbringing, the poor background, you know, not having much money. But, um, you know, he always appreciated the warmer things in life and, and, and having warmth with people. And that's why we loved him so much. I had Clark Dennis on the podcast and he got to play with Seve at the players championship and, uh, talking about helping. And I said, do you got any great stories from the tour? He's like, uh, got to play with Seve at the players. And after Thursday, Friday rounds, he's they're signing the scorecards and he goes to Clark. Hey, uh, you, you know, you, you, you hit it pretty good, Clark, but the short game, uh, that's not so good. And he said, <laughs> I just thought I'd tell you, uh, you know, you hit a bet about shots. I, you know, so he actually then went with Seve and got a chipping yeah. lesson because it was like Clark's like apparently, and I was not good that week. That was dri- driving Seve so crazy after 36 holes of as good as I was hitting it and bad as my short game was, he couldn't take it. And he's like, I, I got to help this kid out. And he's like, he was hitting shots, chipping with like yeah. three irons that I couldn't do with a sand wedge. He's like, it was yeah. unbelievable the different shots he showed me how to hit. And it was just like watching a magician do it. He says short game was that good. It was just, he could do anything with the club. And Clark uh, said, like, it was just one of those greatest memories of just hanging out with Seve and getting a chipping lesson. But he's like, oh, man, it was just a, it was a shit show. <laughs> Seve couldn't yeah. take it anymore. So he, yeah, but he's like, he gave it all the time, right, that he needed to help him. He's just like, he was such a yeah. good guy. Yeah, no, he was. And, and his short game was mind-boggling. And, you know, even at the end of his career, when he, you know, he could hit a five-iron off the tee and miss the entire golf course. But the one thing that never deserted him was um, his short game. I, you know, I played with him um, in the Volvo Masters the one year at uh, a course called Monte Castilla. And, I mean, Seve was, you know, he was way, way past his best. And his long game was horrific. I mean, he really couldn't, he just couldn't, he couldn't hit the golf course. And we got up on the one par three there, and he, it was a five iron and he hit it 40 yards left up a bank that must have been a 40 degree bank. And the flag was tucked four yards on the green on the left hand side and he was in thick, thick grass. And you know, he could hardly get a stance and I thought, well, you know, this is what's going to take forever. Well, he hit a shot there that you can't, you could just never duplicate. He hit this thing, it came out high, soft, landed just on the green and finished short of the hole, a foot short of the hole. And I just looked at this and I thought, you know what, he's still got the absolute magic. He was still phenomenal. And we'd be, we'd have been rain delays. We were off the 10th tee 
Uh, Colin Montgomery was off the first tee. I think he was leading the tournament. And Seve had the whole crowd. I mean, Seve had everybody was following Seve. I think everybody realized that, you know, he was coming towards the end of his career. It was before he'd been diagnosed with cancer, sadly. Um, and we had a massive crowd. And all they wanted to see was moments of genius like that. And when he played the shot, I can't remember who the third was in the group, but we just looked at each other and, you know, it was like, my God, what have we just seen here? And as, as Clark says, just did things with a golf club that you, you know, were contrary to physics, literally contrary to physics. You just couldn't explain how he did it. When, um, when it went bad, it, you know, there's always these stories of him seeing all these different teachers and stuff. Looking mm-hmm. back at it now, because he, he kind of had a really athletic, you know, if you look at his golf swing in his prime, yeah, it was, you know, not textbook, but obviously it worked pretty well most of the time. It looked natural and flowing and not a whole lot of thought. And then it kind of, is it fair to say he got a little mechanical and then he just sort of lost the feel? Or was there a, a, you know, a yip in the full swing? What do you think happened to that ball striking where, you know, it got to the point where it really was, even as good as the short game was, hard for him to play at that top professional level? Yeah, I think um, I was talking with Mike Clayton and Billy Foster, City's long-time caddy, uh, the other day on a podcast. And um, one of them made the point that he... Maybe because uh, Faldo came on tour. Faldo was sort of eclipsing Seve slightly. And, you know, we all know that uh, Faldo was mega, mega technical. And I think Seve sort of took this to heart and started deciding to, you know, to get a, a more technically correct swing. But he, Seve would ask everybody. He would ask the guy that polished the shoes in the locker room, you know, how to improve his game. But he wouldn't really listen to anybody, if I'm honest. I remember playing with him in the um, South African PJ Championship at uh, Houghton a few years before he stopped playing. And he was all over the place. And my coach out there, Mark Witcher, um, uh, is a very, very good uh, golf coach. And I said to Sevi, look, after the round, let's just go and see my coach. Let's just go and see Martin Witcher and spend an hour and just see what he sees. So we went off to Martin's studio at Rand Park Golf Club in Joburg. And I mean, we were were there for probably two hours. And, you know, he had all, he was ahead of the time, Martin, with all the equipment he had and the cameras, et cetera. And he got Sevi absolutely striping it, striping it. And uh, the next day, Sevi came out and playing the second round and just did exactly what he was doing the previous day. Just didn't even try it on the golf course. So he, he just wouldn't pay attention. But one of the interesting things of that whole incident too was just to show how well he was known. We stopped off for petrol. I was driving him home, and as he stepped out the car, everybody on the forecourt of the service station just they were like bees around a honeypot. Within, within a second, everybody recognised him, which was which was saying something about Sally. But yeah, he wouldn't listen to anybody. Um, you know, he would ask advice, but you know maybe he'd try it once or twice. If it didn't work, he would. And I think he got so confused and flustered by the whole thing with the golf swing. I don't think he actually knew through impact what the heck was going on. Whereas, you know, in, in the best part of his career, he didn't care. It was all in the hands. It was all in feel. It was all in timing. It was just completely natural. And I think once he tried to get, uh, or once he let himself get obsessed with technique and mechanics, it definitely, it definitely blew his mind. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's interesting, right? And there's, you know, players have, have had that kind of they had it then they've lost it and some have gotten it back and you know some like yeah. David Duvall never did right it's always a it's a strange thing golf it's uh 
what between greatness and losing your card, the line isn't that far far off sometimes no, at that well, level. Ian, Ian Baker Finch. I mean, Ian yeah. Baker Finch literally overnight went from you know a marvelous player to just it just went. Where the heck does it go? You know, when you see that, you you look at it and you think, as a goal player, you think, you know what? Because and, and I mean, Finchy and uh, David Duval, both smart guys. You know, you look at it and you think, well, you know, if it can happen to them, it can happen to anybody. Exactly. So, you know, you, you just have maximum sympathy. It's the same with putting yips. You know, you see guys with the strongest minds. Look at uh, Bernard Langer. You know, if he can get the yips, you know, anybody can get the yips. It's as simple as that. So uh, you just pray that it never happens to you. I was going to ask you about growing up in South Africa, uh, in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Uh, what was life like in that country when you were growing up, and do you make it back there very often these days? Uh, I go back once a year. Um, I've got a buddy who owns a game farm there, and I, I love uh, wildlife and nature. So I go and spend a, a week just walking around the bush, um, enjoying the, the solitude. Um, but growing up in, in Rhodesia, as it was then, was it was fantastic. I mean... To be honest, we could not have had a better upbringing as kids. You know, it was just so relaxed and so chilled. You didn't lock your doors at home. It was it was wonderful. Um, Golf-wise, um, you know, in the school holidays, our parents would drop us off and they would give us um, a dollar. They'd drop us off at five in the morning, sorry, at uh, seven in the morning and pick us up at five in the evening after work. And we would just spend the whole day at the golf course. We would play and practice and, you know, we would feed ourselves. We'd have a bit of a gamble for a pie and a Coke during the round. And when we, when the folks fetched us, they asked us for the change. We gave them that change. It was so, it used to cost us five cents to play the golf course as many times as we like all day long each day. And we had great junior programs. You know, the parents were all involved. And at the, at the very best, we probably had 10,000 golfers in uh, Rhodesia. I'll call it Zimbabwe because people get twitchy about it. But, but um, you know, out of 10,000 golfers, we turned out Nick Price, Mark McNulty, myself, Dennis Watson, Simon Hobday. Um, you know, there was just so many fantastic players. We had great junior programs. We had great uh, club programs. They used to have a junior inter-club tournament once a year. And I, I played, I was a member of the secondary club in Bulawayo, my hometown. And for the, the um, junior inter-club tournament the one year, we went down there with eight guys, and the highest handicapper was a, a scratch golfer. Wow. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal how the country turned out so many great players. Obviously, uh, Nick was, um, you know, top dog. Uh, you know, I've been knowing Nick my first trip away from home ever as a, a 12-year-old. I stayed with Nick and his mom in Harare and, you know, lifelong friends ever since and as nice a man as you could ever meet but uh, you know how how did such a tiny country produce so many fantastic golfers it really was a wonder how's Zimbabwe doing today I've read that they're trying to do some reforms to the economy to try to bring it back um, I know it's still your home country so I'm sure you want to see it do well but uh, are they starting yeah. to turn a corner a little bit uh, from that standpoint uh, no no they've gone around the corner but fallen straight down the staircase I mean, it's it's a complete shambles. It really is. You know, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, and I'm not talking out of line here, but anyone who knows anything about African politics, the, the corruption is is just completely out of hand. You know, the top dogs look after themselves uh, and everybody else suffers. And no, it, it hasn't improved whatsoever, to be honest. It's, uh, 
it's sheer chaos out there. Well, I've seen these great photos that you put on social media of uh, the wildlife in Africa, and I'm assuming as a kid growing up, were you out in the bush a lot, and was it more hunting back then, and now you do more photography, or, or how uh, how much was the, the the outdoors and all that stuff a part of your life when, when you were living there as a young man? Oh, very much so. You know, we lived out of town a bit, and um, just across the road, there was quite a big area of bushveld, and, you know, from the age of 10 or 11, you know, every kid had a, an air rifle. And, um, you know, before I really got interested in golf, I would have my water bottle on my hip, my air rifle. And in my mind, I was, you know, I was a great, great white hunter, as they used to call it in those days. I uh, didn't really shoot anything, but I used to spend all day just walking around the bush looking at plants and insects and birds and whatever I could find. You know, the one fear for parents, obviously, was snakes because there are a lot of uh, snakes out there. But to be honest, I never saw one. And, uh, yeah, I just loved being out in the bush, loved everything about it. I was never much of a, a hunter. I mean, I've done a bit of vermin control over the years, um, but I was never a hunter or a trophy hunter or a meat hunter. But just fell in love with the, the bush from a very, very early age. And uh, it's been one of the great joys in my life. My wife and I go out to, um, other than my trip to Zim once a year, we go out to the Kruger Park in South Africa once or twice a year and spend eight to ten days out there. And, yeah, the the sense of solitude and peace, I, I just can't I can't find anything else that, uh, that compares with it. Yeah, the pictures you put out there are absolutely stunning. It's, uh, it's cool to see. So I think a lot of people enjoy seeing them. And, yeah, at some point I, I have some friends from South Africa, and it's a little dan- – I, I, I'm sure it would be fine for the most part. At some point in my life i got to go over there and go on a, on a safari and see it. But I've always questioned where do you go and how safe is it and all that other good stuff. It seems like it's changing a little bit. So Yeah, no, I think things are getting better. Um, you know, the, it's hard to beat the – the national parks out there, the Kruger Park. You've got some private great game reserves. And, you know, when you're in the parks and you're completely safe. You know, you're safe from human beings anyway. <laughs> You've got to toe the line and follow the rules of the animals because people do some some silly stuff out in the parks. They think it's, a you know, the local safari park where they can go out and pet the lions and, uh, and they get eaten. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's definitely worth doing. Uh, you know, you've got to go on a safari to Africa once. And, well, the trouble is once you've been once, you won't stop at once because uh, the bug will get you and you'll want to do it again and again. Well, it's definitely on the bucket list for me at some point in, in life. I definitely got to get there. I um, was going to ask you, too, what was your pathway to professional golf? So you played a lot as an amateur, got good quick. W- when did you know you were good enough that you were going to make a, a go of this and, and try it, you know, to make a living and be a successful touring professional? Um, you know, within probably six months of taking up golf, which happened as an accident, we were on a on a holiday up in the Eastern Highlands in Zimbabwe at a little nine-hole golf course, and the hotel manager just roped everybody, and he said, everyone in the hotel is playing in the golf competition tomorrow. None of us had ever played golf. I went out with my dad, um, had golf drilled into me at an early age on the final hole, we knew nothing about it. My dad hit his best shot of the day into a huge boulder, 10 yards ahead, came straight back in my head, put my arm up in front of me, caught me right on the corner of my elbow, which led to floods of tears. You think right there and then I would have said, you know, this, this game is going to drive me nuts. But <laughs> we went home, he bought some second-hand clubs, and from that moment on, uh, we were addicted. And, you know, it's all I ever really wanted to do. And, you know, my 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 folks wanted me to get an education. So, um, you know, I, I progressed and I got better. I played for 
um, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, um, went to, and then, you know, we had an agreement. They said, look, you get an education and we will, uh, we will sponsor you for a year on tour. So I went off to university in Durban down in South Africa, uh, did a, a degree in Bachelor of Arts. Uh, I majored in English and psychology. Can you believe it? If you tell anybody I majored in psychology, they'll laugh at you because I was Looney Tunes on the golf course. And, um, you know, I got to provincial level and it's really all I want to, to do. And I don't think you ever know if you're good enough. You, you might believe you're good enough. And, you know, I had a quite a, an unusual action and I was a very twitchy golfer. I fidgeted horrifically at, uh, at setup. You know, and a lot of people thought, you know, you're just dreaming. But, uh, you know, you, you believe you can do it. Then you've got to go out there and try and prove it. Look, you know, I had good breaks along the way. You know, you see guys that are fantastically good players who just don't get the right break at the right time and never really, really make it in the game. So, you know, I worked very, very hard. Uh, I think I always think I was somebody of maybe slightly better than average talent. Uh, so, you know, I had to put a lot more into it. Uh, and nothing annoys me more to this day than when I see a talented player who, who, who won't put the hours in. Ooh, wasted talent drives me nuts. But yeah, you never you never know it until you actually get across the line. Until I won my first tournament as a pro versus South African Open in '84, you you believe but you don't know, and there's a big difference in that. What was the uh, major tours in the late '70s, early '80s like, vibe-wise back then? I'm guessing there was a few more trips to the bar uh, than the than the workout gym at that point in time, and there had to be some real <laughs> interesting cast of characters traveling the world, playing some golf, uh, and uh, having a few adventures along the way. At least that's how I picture it in my head of of some a uh, lot more fun going on, particularly on a Friday or Saturday night or something to that extent. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you know, we had a lot of a lot of fun. There were a lot of characters out there. I'm a teetotaler, so I must add on some of the fun. But I used to love watching these other guys, uh, you know, going from perfectly sensible citizens to complete <laughs> raving lunatics. Uh, and no, we did have a lot of fun. I've, I've actually been doing a little series of um, tour tales on on Twitter about just things that we did in the 70s and 80s. And you know, it, it was a big difference prior to having kids when things would change when your wife would come out on tour with the kids. When you were out there, and once, also once the kids had started school and you were back on your own again, you know, you were out on tour and uh, your support structure was basically your caddy and your buddies. That was it. You know, these days the guys go out and they have, uh, they've got the manager and they've got the coaches and the physio and the sports psychologist. At uh, Firestone a couple of years ago, I was uh, over there for a President Cup meeting and um, walking down the range listening, the one guy, I won't give any names, had 13 people on his payroll with him there that week. You know, and they all go out in a little group together and they don't really socialize that much. And it's a completely different setup now. Yeah, we used to go down to reception um, in the evenings. And, you know, the, the European has all, always been a multinational tour. And you'd sit there and then you'd just wait for guys to arrive. You'd get a Southern African and an Aussie and an American and a Spaniard and a Frenchman, and you'd just band together in a little group and go and find a restaurant. And, uh, you know, the camaraderie was, was absolutely fantastic. And, yeah, the guys did get up to a lot more hijinks in those days. No question. Do you think it's better for golf to have the 13 people around you? Do you think there's a benefit to it? Or do you, do you think sometimes that that can be overplayed and you don't need that many people around you to kind of, you know, make it work and, and find it and have greatness, right? Do you, do you think sometimes it can 
they can rely too much on those other people when they really don't need them potentially? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, there's so much money out there that the guys can afford now to take uh, this team of people along with them. But yeah, I do think it's overdone. I think, um, you know, some of it's good, but I think it also smothers natural talent. You know, you've got so many people firing their ideas at you and, uh, you know, you're trying all this stuff. You know, I think, you know, I'm sure, you look, Tiger always had his coach there and we know, you know, with the SEALs, he did a bit of SEALs training, etc. when he was young. Uh, but, you know, the, the, a lot of the great players, the likes of Tiger and Rory, you know, they'll have their their um, their uh, physical guy, they'll have their, um, well, I'm trying to find the word now, <laughs> they'll have their chiropractor or whatever, uh, their trainer to help them along, which is a good thing. We used to have to do that ourselves. We just go and run or find a gym or, or something. But, um, you know, the bottom line is they don't tend to be that open to advice. They have their ideas, they have their ability, and off they go and, and they just produce it. Uh, yeah, and I think sometimes it is overdone. I think, you know, if I was going to have a young start, I'd say, listen, first of all, go out there and show us what you can do. You've got a game. Go and show the world what you can do, and then you can fine-tune it. Back to some of the characters. I know you were great friends with Simon Hobday, and I actually <laughs> had to meet Simon once at a Champions Tour event, uh, gosh, in the 90s, I think. <laughs> I and was he, was ho- he was hilarious. Yeah, I got his autograph. I think he won the U.S. Senior Open, right? So I, I think I got the golf week that he signed for me, and he was very, <laughs> very funny. I remember a big smile on his face with a mustache. And I'm assuming there has to be a couple of good Simon Hobday stories from back in the day. Well, I tell you what, if I start on Hobday stories, this podcast better get on for two days. <laughs> Hobbes was the most naturally funny man I ever came across. You know, I played with uh, Trevino a few times, and uh, Lee was very funny. But, you know, after six or seven holes, the, the repertoire for, of the day would start repeating itself. Hobbes was the greatest exponent of the one-liner, and they were originals. It was just stuff that came into his head. And, you know, he just, and I never heard him repeat a one-liner. They just came to him. And he was just, he was the funniest man I ever came across. I mean, the funniest man I ever came across. And he had, Hobbes had this running battle with God. He was convinced, Hobbes, that he was the unluckiest man on the planet. And he had, <laughs> you know, you'd be playing with him and he'd nail a drive down the field and you'd say, good shot, Hobbes. And he'd get halfway off the tee and stop and go, no. No, 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 no. What's the problem? And he'd stick his finger up his nose and say, that's dead. It's like that. Finger up the nose. That's in a divot. And he looked at his hobbies. You can't even see what the ball is. We're over a slight rise. No, I'm telling you, I can feel it. I know. He's done it to me again. God's done it to me again. And I promise you, nine out of ten times, he would be absolutely right. Well, if he hit slightly off the fairway, there'd be one tree. And he'd go, that's dead. That's dead. Finger up the nose. That's dead. He's got me again. You get their ball stone dead behind the tree. And he had all sorts of tricks to try and confuse God. Uh, he would carry an array of headgear in his, in, his, in his golf bag. And he would keep changing headgear. And you weren't allowed to call him Simon. He'd go, don't call me Simon or Hobbes. And he'd point up at the sky and say, I think I've got him fooled. He doesn't know it's me. <laughs> and then inevitably, somewhere along the line, he would have some horrific breaking. Yeah, yeah. And he'd look up the sky and say, why don't you just come down here and fight like a man? <laughs> We'd all back off, you know, expecting the lightning bolt. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then you'd change headgear. You know, you'd grab the headgear off a playing partner and try and imitate their walk. 
I remember doing it once with Ian Mosey, who had this very unusual walk, grabbed his hat and, uh, you know, uh, Hobbes, not, I'm not Hobbes, I've got him fooled again. <laughs> and, then, and until the luck persisted, you wouldn't get your headgear back. And he was, I mean, he was just, he was just hilarious and just everything he did, you know, and to his, to his final hours, Hobbes was like that. You know, Hobbes could not, could not say a prepared speech for all his, you know, ability to talk and tell stories. And he and I were both inducted into the South African Hall of Fame on the same night. So I got up and made my speech. And Hobbes always looked like he'd been dragged backwards through a bush. You know, you could take him to Savile Row and get the most expensive suits fitted. And once he got it on, it still looked like he'd been run over by a truck. I mean, <laughs> and I'll get back to, his, to, to that side of it in a minute. But uh, he gets up to get inducted in the Hall of Fame and he's got, you know, he's got the black tie on and the, the, the penguin suit. And he reaches into his pocket and he starts looking around at the audience and he pulls out this piece of paper the size of a postage stamp and he starts unfolding this piece of paper and looking at everybody he says before I even start I want you all to know that this could not have happened to a nicer guy eventually he opened up his whole speech was about two inches by two inches and, and actually said a, a wonderful speech but you know going back to uh when he was, he was really, he was um, at death's door, we'd heard. And um, I phoned him up on Thursday, and he passed away the following Friday. And I said to him, I said, listen, Hobbes, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear you so unwell. I won't use the exact language because he could swear like a trooper. And he said, ill? I'm not ill. I'm out of here. I'm done. <laughs> and he stopped laughing. So at the end of the conversation, I said, Hobbes, you know, you know how much we all love you. He said, well, of course. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you love me? <laughs> and uh, um, Peter Makovic is good, but he was at his bedside basically as he was about to pass away. And he says to, to Matko, Matko, what am I going to say? What am I going to say if I get lucky and go, go to heaven? What do, I, what do I say to that? Matko says, Hobbes, listen, I don't know what you're going to say, but whatever you do, don't go with a prepared speech because you know you will cock it up. And with that, Hob Day just laughed and, and passed away. I mean, isn't that just a wonderful way for a man like that to, to leave the mortal coil? I mean, he was just, he was a proper person up there. I uh, remember meeting him. I just remember the smile. He had this ah. huge smile signing autographs, right? And funny comments and all the time in the world. But the big smile, right? He had this big smile on his face, post-round and happy to sign yeah. autographs. And, of course, oh, I yeah. still remember that clothes did not look like the rest of the professionals. Like I said, it looked like he kind of, nothing was pressed right and, it was no, like no. a guy who was a 15 handy, 20 handicap at your club who yeah, yeah. had a bender the night before. Like, it's like usually professionals, they look, they got that, you know what I mean? Like, you can tell a professional. Yeah, yeah. Simon yeah, looked yeah. like he could have been playing like a 20 handicap at your local nine hole muni. Yeah, shirt but, hanging out. Well, and you know yeah. how he used to, he used to do his washing up. He used to, um, get back, throw everything in the bath and he loved reading. And so he'd pour a bit of washing powder in and he'd sit there with his two arm and stir the bath while he read his book. <laughs> He'd just sit there and stir with a two on, and then he'd hang everything up around the bathroom, and then whatever was dry first got worn. If, if it was purple trousers and, and an orange shirt, those are dry, that'll do. And, and, and forget the ironing. And, and, you know, honestly, the shirt was always hanging out. He was an absolute scruff, but he was one of the probably the three best strikers in my mind, four maybe, that ever lived. 
Hogan I never got to see, but I played quite a lot with Tom Watson, and he was just, still is, just unbelievable. Words can't describe it. Nick Price uh, was another one, and Hobbers was the other. I mean, Hobbers was just, you know, my, my clubs always had a worn patch on the face that, you know, with the size of a 50-cent piece or a dollar coin. And Hobbers had this tiny little thing of the size of a fingernail in the middle of his club face. And um, Nick and I, the one day, were sitting with him and when we were juniors and said, well, Simon, what do you think about when you hit the ball? He said, oh, that's easy. You just think about hitting the sweet spot. We looked at each other and we thought, oh, okay. <laughs> a, it was great advice, but B, it came so easily to him. He was the most fantastic striker of a golf ball. But sadly, his... His putting didn't match up to it. He was a good bunker player, good chipper, but his putting, he was really, really jumpy with a putter. And when he won the U.S. Seniors Open, I don't know if you ever saw the interview, they said, so, I was how, how nervous were you on that last putt? He says, oh, he said, I was way too nervous to choke. <laughs> well, and you I think mean, about his, <laughs> his golf swing was technically, like, perfect. It was just right? amazing. Like the- the positions, and I'm back in that generation, I mean, that was just his swing, right? But there was, boy, there wasn't much to go wrong with that. I'm just visualizing the path of his swing in my head. And, I mean, it was about as simple as it got, right? I mean, it's just sort of back yeah. to that slot position and turn through with everything he had. And, boy, talk about a repeatable golf swing. Oh, man. And, you know, when he did come out on tour, guys who were great strikers, the likes of Nick Price, Darren Clark, they would take time to go and sit there and watch Obday strike the ball. That's how good he was. And, uh, and, you know, people don't know that he was a fantastic sportsman, an all-round sportsman. When he was young, he lived in uh, Zambia, and he played uh, rugby for Zambia. He was, I mean, he played a couple of sports at top, top level. He was a, just a very naturally gifted sportsman. He really was. He was brilliant. Well, let's talk about a few of your wins, uh, six of them on the European Tour over a 17-year period, which is really impressive. I, you know, I think... Golf fans finally start to understand, how, you know, how hard that is to be relevant on tour for that long. And what was your key to being a world-class player for that extended period of time? And is there, out of those six wins on the European tours, the one that stands out as sort of your crowning achievement in your mind? Um, you know, the, the biggest win for me was the, um, it was the Volvo PJ at Wentworth, now the BMW PJ. Um, you know, other than the, the five majors, that was tied with the Players' Championship in the States at that time for the highest world-ranked points tournament. So that was huge. And I got a 10-year exemption for it, which was was fantastic. It took uh, so much pressure off. But, you know, every win, every win was special. You know, I can remember every win. I can remember coming down the home stretch of every win I ever had. Um, so, you know, it's always hard to, to pick one. I mean, probably the South African Open my very first win uh, in 1984. You know, we talked about believing you can win and knowing you could win. That was, a, that was probably the most important win of my career. But uh, the PGA at Wentworth was, was definitely the biggest. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I love competing. I just love competing. Um, you know, if you don't love competing and you can't put the travel and the, the loneliness and solitude behind you, it's not the right line of work for you. 17 years. I mean, like I said, what, what was also that key to be that good for that long? For, you know, there's no one else taking your card. You're still 20 years plus top level player. To me, that's I don't think like Pat Perez in the American Tour gets enough credit. Just to he's had his card for like 22, 23 years straight. Um, yeah, you know those guys who just there's no fall off. They just are like machines. You know Charles Howell the third. Yeah, three wins or whatnot. But I mean, 
guy makes $2 million every year. Like, you were competitive for that extended period of time. Imagine all the great players or younger coming up, can't bump you from the tour, and you're still winning over that period of time. Is, there, is, it, is it more of the mental side? Were you lucky that you stayed injury-free? What was sort of your key to that longevity? Um, short game and lots of practice. You know, I, I, I knew when I first came on our tour and saw the likes of Seve that uh, I was going to have to put in some serious practice and uh, have to work really hard and develop a game to compete out there. Um, you know, the love of competing was part of it. But, yeah, the hard work and dedication. And um, I was very fortunate that I developed a, a really good short game. I was a, an excellent putter inside sort of eight feet. I was never a brilliant long putter. Um, I always had an issue with my eyes. My depth perception wasn't wasn't too good. Um but yeah, just uh, you know, I, I always practiced my long game a third and my my short game two thirds. That was my goal uh, because I was never a particularly long hitter. I was a decent striker, but not a great striker. And I knew that to be able to to make a career out of it, you know, and a career is not five or ten years. You want to be doing it for you know twenty, twenty five, thirty years. You know, from starting off my career to finishing on the seniors to it was a it was a thirty five year span basically. Um, you know, and you've, you've got to be, if you haven't got a short game, you're wasting your time. You know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of the long game. Yes, it is very important. But the difference between uh, winning and not winning is down to short game. And nobody will ever convince me otherwise. So, and you've got to love it. You know, you've got to love, you've got to love playing. You've got to love, well, love competing. I mean, the playing side of it, the game always drove me slightly to, to distraction. I was always... Um, fairly bad tempered on the golf course. I used to come off the course every day embarrassed about my behavior and thinking tomorrow will be different and the next day I'd go out and act like a, you know, an immature toddler again. <laughs> well, I, think, I think the game can do that to all of us, right? Even at the professional <laughs> level or amateur level, it's, you're, you're half yeah. sadistic if you, this is your best passion in life that you're going to be most yeah. of the time, right? It's not perfect. And you put yeah. all this effort and time in, and even us amateur golfers go through that of, you know, yeah, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you hit a couple shots and you come back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still in there. I'll find it. <laughs> um, short game, too. Like, what, what do you see? I mean, like I said, you've always had a, been regarded as one of the best short games in the world when you're playing the tour. When you were in programs and watching amateur players, is there one or two things that you saw most people do incorrectly? even on kind of the basics level of their short game and how they could improve quite quickly if they would just do X? Uh, yes. Chipping, uh, you know, chipping is, is basic fundamentals. You know, get the ball back in your stance towards your right foot, set up with your hands ahead, and, you know, you have to accelerate. So Acceleration is always the key in, in any shot in golf. You know, a lot of weekend golfers will make a long backswing and then just decelerate through the ball and duff it. And the other big thing that uh, mid-high handicappers do, they get behind a bunker with a sand wedge and they're trying to help the ball up in the air. You know, they, they won't let the club head and the loft do the work for them. So I would say ball back in the stance, hands ahead, use enough loft and make sure that you compress the ball down into the turf. You've got to hit ball first, squeeze into the turf, the loft will do all the work for you and then you can alter the flight by opening the club face or shifting it slightly. And I mean, basically... It, it's just not as complicated as, as people make out, um, you know, and a bit of practice. You know, there are a lot of uh, coaches out there that make it sound like uh, the short game is alchemy. 
and it isn't. You know, you can you can basically teach anybody um, the basic fundamentals of of chipping and bunker play. The putting's a different department. You know, some guys are just gifted with um, an ability on the putting green. Um, yeah, and you know, I I like in, in programs to to give the guys tips on the short game because that was my forte. You know, I was never a, a very technically correct swinger of the golf club, never really into golf mechanics. So, you know, I used to leave that side of it alone unless it was basics, you know. Um, so that was it, short game, loved it. The only, I haven't played, I really don't play, I stopped playing five years ago. And the only thing I really miss is uh, doing short game practice, which I do a little bit of. But, um, you know, you go there and you see these shots that you could hit five years ago and, you know, you do exactly the opposite and want to tear your hair out. So... <laughs> I don't do very much. <laughs> have other uh, touring professionals you know, sought you out for help with their short game? And if they have, is it quite rewarding to work with the world's best when they come to you and potentially see how you can help them or what technique you think they can improve upon? Yes. Yeah, no, I've, uh, you know, I've helped uh, quite a few of the boys. Um, you know, some very good players. I'm not going to mention names. And I'm not blowing my own trumpet here. But, yeah, quite a few guys have come to me, um, particularly for bunker play. Uh, bunker play was, you know, the strongest part of, of my game. Um, and that, that coming from Southern Africa was purely because of Gary Player. Um, you know, he was the, the greatest bunker player in the world, so you wanted to emulate him. And, you know, he would come occasionally up to Rhodesia as it was and do clinics. And, you know, I used to watch this guy in the sand and just sit there with my jaw hanging. You know, he could get the ball to stop on the first bounce, the second bounce, the third bounce, plugged lies. You know, there's so many variations in the bunker, suddenly different shots, you know, and I thought, well, you know, I want to be as good or better than him. And I used to spend hours and hours and hours every single day of the school holidays just practicing bunker play. So, you know, on my career, during my career, I used to wear out two or three ping sand irons a year just practicing bunker play. I just loved bunker play. I loved the sensation of the club going through the sand and, you know, you could tell immediately what, you know, what spin you had on it, how it was going to bounce. I just loved it. So uh, guys do come to me still and, and ask me for help up the sand. And again, there's a lot of absolute, absolute tosh spoken about bunker play. You know, sometimes, you know, there are, look, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great coaches out there. But, you know, there's also a lot of guys who have to justify um, their existence. So they've got to reinvent the wheel. And more often than not, um, you know, it's, it's total rubbish. Every great bunker player I've known, in history has done the same basic things out of the sand. Guys want to try and reinvent it, set up square, set up closed, take the club inside the line. No, 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 no. Don't listen to any of that stuff. Do you think because of Mr. Player, because I think of South African golfers, they all have like great bunker games. What do you think about it? Do you think that's all from Mr. Player going down through the generations of emulating what he did? Yeah, without question. You know, he sort of um, encouraged us without, you know, saying it to us. We, we encouraged ourselves. To, to have great short games. You know, we'd all seen what Gary did because of his short game. You know, he was a notorious snap hooker at the golf ball with a driver. So his short game and his wedge play were fantastic. That got passed on to us. And then the generation after us saw Gary and the rest of us doing it. And I think, you know, try to emulate what we did. Uh, you know, we would spend time with uh, the new guys on pro and, you know, we'd all sort of share ideas and things. And But basically, yes, it all stemmed uh, from Gary, no question. The modern golf game today, uh, 
if if you were made king for uh, all of golf, USGA, R&A, all the rules, and uh, they would have to implement your one or two changes you would make to the professional game and maybe the amateur game. I don't know if you're a fan of bifurcation at this point, but if, if you could make a couple changes in the game, what would those be? Uh, well, first thing I would address would be equipment, no question. You know, I think uh, that's that's the, the single biggest change. I think it's uh, the the new equipment is it's detracting from skill required to play the game. Uh, you know, the ball goes too far. The, 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 there's so many things they need to address: size of club heads, etc., driver heads. Uh, you know, they're dumbing the game down, and the challenge of the game was always was that it was very difficult, and nobody was ever going to perfect it. They still won't. But it's just made the game a lot easier. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for the, the players these days that have never felt the feel of a Bellata ball off a persimmon head. It was the most glorious feel when you got one right out the screws, timed it perfectly. There was nothing to match it in the modern game. I still have nightmares, though, because I'm 47 years old. So I grew up with that equipment of the... In, yeah, the, you know, I, it's a it was a different game, right? Because you couldn't mm. swing as hard. But oh my gosh, that you know, you can't snap hook the old or the new equipment like you could the old equipment, right? I still have night terrors of <laughs> millisecond from a good swing to just left of left, right? The new equipment doesn't do that. You just no, can't snap it like no, that. No, you talk to the modern players about a snap hook, they look at you, you know, like you're an alien. They don't really know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. It, yeah, and we, I think we lost a lot with, with the new equipment. I really do think the game did lose. It lost a lot of feel. And, you know, you hit a, on a good point there. With the old equipment, you had to swing at 80 or 90%. The, yeah. the old ball used to spin so much. If you hit it 100%, the thing would take off and just go off sideways. If there was any side spin on it, you were going to miss a fairway by. You could miss a fairway the longer hitters by 100 yards plus. Uh, and you so- just don't see that anymore. No, and uh, our home course has a Division One golf program in Northern Illinois there, and you know mm. I'm still swing irons at eighty, eighty five percent, just because I can't get it out of my system. It's how I was taught to play. I watch these college kids now who are oh. know, six foot three, and they hit oh. eight iron from like one eighty, and like it's a you couldn't have done that with the old equipment that I grew up. You couldn't do it. The ball would have just gone any wind into that thing with that much spin, or it would have spun so much hitting it that hard. Yeah. It would have been unplayable. And you yeah. can really see the divide between, you know, I'm of the older generation where you don't go that hard at the, a lot of the clubs. And then if yeah. you were started playing golf, you know, 2003 onward with the modern, let's call that the start of the modern equipment, modern two-piece ball, mm-hmm. it is a totally different game. It's a totally different game of the way they play it, the distance they see it, uh, hit it, how they see the shots. Yeah. Um, so... You know, would you, if you, you know, so it's, we got this sort of divide there. Would you give the amateur golfers like myself the modern equipment? Is that, would you buy, would you have the rules bifurcate per se so we could still play the new equipment and enjoy what, how much easier it makes it and then change it just for the professionals? Or how would you then address the amateur game with the professional game? Well, I think the first thing you'd have to address is did amateurs who played with, softer balls and um, and persimmon clubs, did they enjoy the game any less than amateurs do with the modern equipment today? And I don't really think they did. I think part of the charm of golf and the challenge was the fact that um, it was always difficult. It was meant to be difficult. You know, it's the most difficult game in the world. But uh, to address your question of bifurcation, yes, I think I probably would let the amateurs keep on with the, with the new stuff or, or give them the option. 
But uh, tour-wise, you know, there's a lot of talk about how much better athletes guys are these days. Well, I'll tell you what, you watch Greg Norman or Jack Nicklaus or, you know, some of the, the bigger hitters in their day. I mean, Norman could do anything in the gym that the guys could do now. I mean, Norman was fanatical about the exercise. He was as strong as anybody out there. And it was the, the fact that you could only hit the ball at 80%. If you hit it at 100%, you were, you were a lost soul. So that's made a huge difference. But, you know, if the amateurs prefer playing the new stuff, let them. Why not? But tournament play, you know, I think if you started uh, using a, a softer ball or different equipment and they started seeing pros, you know, moving the ball more in their shaping shots, maybe they would want to do the same thing. I have no idea. It's a, it's a heck of a t- tough question, isn't it? Yeah, I, I enjoy the new equipment. I can just say for myself, of, I don't have to put the practice in to, to, to still play pretty darn well and, you know, yeah. for the most part, you can grab a modern driver, assume it's fit right for you, and you have the right ball. I don't have to put the range time in to, to still hit it pretty good. Where, like you yeah. said, that old equipment, you had to play a lot and time it to hit that sweet spot was so much smaller. And you had to kind of hit, for us amateurs, you had to hit the hook, right? Because yeah. you get the spin off of it. And now you can hit a little butter cut and it still doesn't spin. So you can kind of hold it off a little easier and mm. your, your misses are so much better. I enjoy not having to put the time I used to have to put in at 16, 17 years old, 30 years ago on that equipment. That's the one benefit I see of it, of golf is awfully hard. If everyone has busy lives, would people on the amateur level not enjoy it enough once they've been exposed to this new equipment, if they had to go backwards, would you lose golfers, you know, yeah. playing the game, you know, because, but in the same token, as you well know, unless you're swinging at 110, 115 miles an hour, we're not, I swing at 100, we're not overpowering a 63 or 6,400-yard golf course, even with the new equipment. There's yeah. such an advantage of, at the highest level, if you can swing it at 119, of what that ball and what that equipment will do for you compared to me. So I, I don't mind the idea of a bifurcation. Let us and just enjoy it. We don't have to build new tee boxes at our club, even at 6,400 yards for the most part. Yeah. But I would love to see some more mid-irons uh, into par fours on the professional level. I think it would be interesting to actually see a five iron from 200 yards or 190, what that looks like. Oh, wouldn't it be? Well, about years ago, I think it was um, Dustin Johnson didn't hit more than a seven iron into any par for the entire season. Now, that is just absolute nonsense. You know, there's 14 clubs in the bag and golf course architects in the day designed golf courses so that you were using all of those clubs. I mean, it's just complete nonsense. Um, you know, and I, I, I see your point, and I agree with your point about not having to practice as much. That is a big thing for amateurs. You know, golf is, uh, life is a lot more hectic these days. Uh, who has the time to go out there and hit balls for, you know, two hours every evening? And that is a very good point. But uh, the professional game, yeah, I would like to see uh, the demands on skill reintroduced because there's no way that the modern guys are any less skilled than they were 20 or 30 years ago. These guys have got serious skills, but they're not asked the questions and they're not asked to display the skills. They've asked two questions. How far can you hit it and how well can you putt? You know, in between, it's short downs all along. And it's just dumbed the game down so much. You know, watching um, the Masters, you know, I, 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 don't in, I still enjoy watching Augusta, but not as much as I used to with the old equipment because... There were so many other variables and so many shots that you were called on to play in 18 holes. And I think that was, I think that was part of the, the beauty of the game. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm at the age I've, like I said, I've seen the old equipment and seen the new equipment, and I shouldn't be longer off the tee than I was at 25, and I am at 47. So, you know, that might tell you something that it's, it's, you know, it's definitely a different game. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's in, it, and I, like I said, I, I do, if you go watch like, uh, when they have like the open championship on from the eighties on the golf channel during open week of, if the tournament's going on, I'm sure they'll have it this year playing the old ones. The swings look like they're literally swinging at half speed. Norman swung <laughs> pretty hard still, but like you couldn't, you know, watching Tommy Nakajima in the day, they did, mm. it looks like he's just feathering something out there. And that was like, you I mean, you played at that level with that equipment. You just couldn't go after it, especially into the wind or something. It just, even watching it looks completely different. Of how hard they would go at it was more finesse than I actually miss it. it. Was it was they played they made golf pretty. It was art. It was some. It was more pretty than just beat driver with a two yard cut hit seven iron from two oh five two foot cut putting yeah. contest. Yeah, and you know, I think it's it's uh, narrowed the gap so much. Unless you can hit the ball, unless you can get it out there three hundred yards, you're not going to compete. There are very very no. few medium hitters. You know, a guy like Justin Thomas is lucky. He's a, he's a small guy. He's my size. But he's found a way to to get it out there and, and pound it. But, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you'd get a much wider range of uh, distance hitters winning. You'd got, hit, get guys that would hit a 240. You'd get guys that could hit a 270. You'd, you know, you'd get short hitters, long hitters. The variety of winners was much bigger. Now, you know, if you can't smash it with a driver, you just cannot compete, which I think is a pity because it was never meant to be a game of distance. It was meant to be a game of skill. And I think that's the biggest difference between the modern game and the game of 30 years ago. Speaking of players of, of today uh, on the American tour or European tour, is there are two or three young players that you really enjoy watching uh, when you're doing your coverage? Yes, I love watching Justin Thomas. I love watching him because I look at him and I think, my God, it must have been fun to be on the ball that far if I could have. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's so many good golfers. I love watching Ricky Fowler. Uh, I think Ricky's, you know, he's different. He's a good guy. Sort of spent time with him at President Cups. And, uh, you know, he is what he is. I, I mean, there's, there's so many good players now. You know, we've got some great players coming out of South Africa. Unbelievable youngsters coming through the ranks. So you're going to see in the next few years uh, in Europe worldwide. Um, you know, you've got to try and stay impartial when you're doing commentary. But this is a question. You do have your favorites. You know, you try not to let it show. But uh, the talent out there is is just absurd, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I, I just love watching golf. Yeah, the you know the person who's ranked 200th in the world anymore is still you know one millimeter away from winning the next tournament, right? I mean, the depth, oh, the yeah. depth, the talent, oh, the yeah. athlete. It's that it's the difference between 200th in the world and fifth in the world is so Minimal. small anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's and the crazy difference between how... the difference between being a superstar and losing your card on any tour in the world is is so small now. It's unbelievable. You know, you've, as I said earlier, sometimes you've got to have the right breaks at the right time too. But uh, there is just so much talent out there, and you know, it's because of the money. You know, there's so many guys that can come out now and uh, and make a career out of it, earn a, not just a good living, but become very wealthy. You know, people are chasing more people chasing the dream now. You know, when we came out, uh, I, I turned pro in 1980. I wanted to make it my career because my dream uh, to be a pro golfer, but. You know, it was way less money. I had to, you know, pay mortgages, feed family, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, unless you, unless you won regularly, you were, you were never going to get wealthy. 
So that was the goal. But, uh, you know, there were less guys prepared to do that. I think it was a bit more of a vocation maybe in those days. You, you did it because you loved golf so much. That's what you wanted to do with your life. You know, despite people laughing at you and saying, you're, you're an idiot. That's what you wanted to do. So you went and tried. Well, I've got a couple uh, final ones here, and we'll, we'll get you out of Dodge. But I appreciate you taking the time today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, um, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. Best two or three golf courses architecturally you've gotten to play uh, during your career, and it doesn't have to be a course on tour, but just two or three of the best where you're just, I could play that golf course every single day because it's so good. Um, you know, I didn't play that much in America. Um, well, I'll, I'll go around the world. Uh, Royal Melbourne, Alistair McKenzie. I mean, in my mind, Alistair McKenzie and Harry Colt were, um, you know, two of the best that ever lived, and basically their courses are the courses that I love. Um, Royal Melbourne, where they played the President's Cup last last year, I think the, one of the real winners there was Royal Melbourne, the fact that the course hasn't been stretched, and with fabulous uh, golf course architecture, it stood the test of time. Uh, Sunningdale Old, uh, Sunningdale have been fantastic to me since 1984, let me do all my practice up there. Sunningdale Old is just... Uh, you know, if I was going to die and go to heaven and have to play one course every day for eternity, it would be Sunningdale Old. Um, and then the Lynx courses. You can't ever forget the Lynx courses. St. Andrews, you know, St. Andrews, because of what it is, I'd have to put that number one on my list. First time I played it, I thought it was some kind of really bad joke. I was playing with my buddy John Bland uh, in a practice round for an Open Championship. And, you know, I'd obviously heard about St. Andrews my whole life. And the first time I played it, I thought, this is an absolute travesty. This is just a field with some, you know, some bomb blast bunkers and just horrendous. I hated it. And I said that to John Bland, and he looked at me and just laughed. And he said, yeah, you'll learn, my boy. You know, and then having played it 100 or 150 times, the more you play it, the more you see the subtleties. Uh, and I love it. And to me, Lynx golf is, um, is really as good as it gets. You know, Port Rush last year, where they played the Open. I'd never played it. And I stood on the first tee for our first walk around, and I thought, my God, what a golf hole this is. I wonder if there's any more like this. And there were 17 more like that. It was the most phenomenal golf course. So, you know, it's hard to narrow it down when you've played hundreds and hundreds. But, uh, you know, those are the ones that, uh, in my mind, I would I could play forever. Is Muirfield on that list? I've heard if you're a good golfer, you would appre- the architecture of Muirfield is one of the... I haven't played it yet, but one of the best for Lynx golf. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, you know what? Muirfield never really grabbed my attention. In my mind, there were a lot of Lynx courses. Burtdale, fabulous Lynx course. There were Lynx courses that um, I, I did prefer. Saying that, Muirfield, uh, you know, the times I did play, were there, they were, it was always tricked up. You know, the rough was a foot high, and, you know, t- to me it wasn't proper Lynx golf. I would love to have played Muirfield as the members played, and, you know, I know people say it's fantastic, but I didn't really get to see that side of it because it was, it was havoc when we were out there. Same with Carnoustie. Carnoustie is a fabulous golf course, but, you know, when they played it at Open Championships and things, you know, big events like that, um, they, they, they trick it up too much. It becomes unbearable. They play the uh, Dunhill Lynx tournament. It's one of the three courses they play there every year. St. Andrews, Kings Barnes, and uh, and it's not tricked up, and then it is a pleasure to play. But when it's set up for an open, my God, it is the most brutal test of golf. You never come off there thinking that was fun. And 
isn't that the bottom line with golf? You want to come off every day, tournament-wise, amateur, pro. You just want to come off and feel, you know, that was just a, that was a great challenge out there today. I enjoyed it. Most underrated player on the European tour who just doesn't get enough credit for how good they really are. Uh, current player? Um, yeah, current. That you're watching when you're doing the broadcast and you're like, boy, is he world class. And you just, people don't realize how good and consistent and solid this player is. Um, I'll probably say Bernd Wiesberger, uh, the Austrian. He's won a couple of times in Europe. Um, fabulous player. I, I still think he's going to um, have a really good chance in a couple of majors. Uh, Matt Wallace. Um, but guys... Young Brandon Stone, young South African. Um, yeah, he can play. He can play. Yes, I mean, you know, and there's, you know, when you're at the tournaments most weeks watching these guys and you look at them and, you know, some of them you look at and think, you know, why is this guy not winning majors? And there are other guys you look at, uh, you think, you know, this guy has to win a major. But there's so much talent out there and exactly what you were saying, it's such a fine line now between the mega talented and the slightly less talented. And there's just so many guys out there you think, well, this guy's going to win a major, he's going to win a major, he's going to win a major. Sadly, there's only four a year. So we might never get to see all of those talents on display. Last question I have for you is uh, you got to play in all the major championships. Uh, which one was your favorite you played in? What, made, what makes that major even above the other three that you just truly enjoyed the whole experience and, and you know, it's that special? And which one of, of those four is it for you? Uh the Open Championship. For me, it has to be the Open. You know, having come from outside of America, Southern Africa, all you dreamt about was the the Open Championship. Um, and the Open Championship at St. Andrews was always, you know, that was that was the pinnacle. But, uh, you know, they're, they're all fantastic. Um, Augusta, I love watching Augusta. I love watching the Masters. I didn't enjoy playing it. I only played in it once in 95. Um and I've got to be honest, I didn't really enjoy the experience. The course was hugely tricked up. Uh, it was the one year as a mad king gardener that the azaleas didn't come out. I got around to Amen Corner expecting this breathtaking sight, and everything was green. I mean, I was so hacked off. I was, I was, <laughs> it was a disappointment. <laughs> but I love watching, uh, I love watching the Masters. Of all the majors, probably I like watching the Masters the most, but playing wise, the Open was uh, was the one for me. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time. I, I knew we'd have a great conversation, and I truly enjoyed it. So stay safe and healthy over on the other side of the pond. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. What an absolute pleasure. Before I go, I just want to say that you know you said you don't have enough time to practice. I think that was a I think that was a bailout. I think you're a lazy bastard. <laughs> Well, you know, they've got three <laughs> golf businesses, two small kids, and a demanding wife, you know. If you I got can, time, I just go play. That. You can cut that out. Uh, yeah, you know what it is, though? Honestly, I love playing so much. I truly yeah. love playing. And when I yeah. have the time, I love mm. playing. And I know I should, like like all of us, like my golf game is good enough where I can, I can, for the most part, hit a full shot. Yeah. I should practice the 125 and in more. That's where I can tell. Yeah. Oh my God! From eighty-three yeah. yards, that shot was total shit. Right? It's twenty-eight <laughs> feet away, and that's what I should be practicing. But I love playing so much. I just want to go out and play I when I have the time. I know, and the of equipment course, does of make course. it easier. I think, but... I think most people are like that. You know, practicing <sighs> can be a chore. You know, most people play the game not 
you know, they're not necessarily chasing a handicap, trying to get down to scratch. They want to go out and just play. And I know exactly what you mean. And the, you know, the mnemonic does make that easier. No question. It, no there question. is no doubt that you can, if you have a pretty repeatable golf swing, for full swings, it's easier. Mm. But you still have to practice from like 125 and in. That's still just time, touch, effort, flight control. Yeah. That's that's where I need to. Uh, if I if I did actually put some more effort in, that's where I'd be. That's where I'd be putting the effort in. I think most people, if they did that, like you were saying about short game, right? You could get better. Yeah. You know, if you can miss those greens and get up and down, or take advantage of a, a, you know a wedge shot on a par five to make a birdie rather than a par. Yeah. That's the difference between seventy five and seventy, right? I mean. Yeah. For well, we'll, we'll do this. We'll do this me. again in six months' time, and I want to see if you've kept your word. All right, I'll try to put a little effort in. If I got questions, I'll send you a message. But I really enjoyed the conversation. I'll, I'll put uh, a little too. more effort into the short game. We'll see where we can get it this summer. All right, and stay safe. And everybody listening, stay safe out there. We'll keep well. Thanks, Pro. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jason.